1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Cholai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Every year when I go to a Linux Fest, I always make sure to try to ride in the car with a couple of people on the way to the restaurant on the way back to the studio, whatever it is. One of those people is Alan Jude, the man who literally wrote the book on ZFS. Alan joins us this hour to talk about ZFS, System Administration Backup. It's going to be a jam-packed episode. So without further ado, Alan, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah, thanks for having me. It's been a while since I got to chat with you. So So I guess, Alan, let me start with this. How did you get into technology? How did you get into BSD and software development and networking and all of the things that you have become proficient at? I think the earliest part was when
0: I first got the internet, access to the internet at home was, uh, it was to my birthday present for my 14th birthday. Uh, it was dial up, but for some reason the ISP had to like mail you the startup kit that had your username and password in it or whatever. So it took almost two weeks for me to get this stupid kit in the mail. And all I needed was the username and password. And I could have done it without, you know, the discs they send you in the mail and so on. Uh, But once I knew I was getting the internet, I was talking to my neighbor about it who has uh, gotten into computers fairly recently and he had uh, done like the MCSE exam or whatever and kind of transitioned from being a a heavy equipment operator into a a computer person. And he told me, you know, oh, I have this friend and he runs this uh, IRC chat server out of his basement in Vancouver and we all hang out there and chat and so on. And so the very first thing I did when I got the internet on my home computer was download an IRC client. Of course, not knowing the address or whatever uh, for my f- the friend of my neighbor, I just clicked on the first server that said Vancouver and got on IRC and started playing around with it and talking to people. Uh, and very quickly I got into, okay, so how do I run a server of my own of this? And eventually I found someone that knew how you did that or whatever, and they directed me to the software. So I download this. .tar.gz file i'd never seen one of those before but it opened in winrar uh where i had opened all the other archives i've downloaded from the internet so i was like okay uh and i'm looking through it and then i'm like i asked the guy there's no .exe file in here how do you run this and they're like oh you don't run it on windows silly you need a shell account i'm like what's that and so eventually i learned a bit about that and got my first shell account which i think at that time, because I was so young, I didn't have a credit card, involved mailing a money order to this guy once a month that I'd have to go and buy at the post office, and it was like my entire allowance or whatever. But I got access to a shell on uh, basically a, a Telnet login on this guy's FreeBSD server in Quebec, uh, and from there, I could compile software by hand with you know dot .slash configure, answer a bunch of silly questions, and then make... And compile it all and and run it and, you know, leave a process running in the background while you're logged out. And I had this IRC server now that, you know, I could be in charge of.
1: So at this time, Alan, there are obviously you could have presumably installed a a Linux or Unix based operating system and run it that way. At the time, I'm assuming that these, uh, those operating systems weren't as popular. And so people that wanted to use that particular operating system for one particular purpose would just pay a monthly or yearly fee or whatever and get access to somebody else's computer that ran that operating system? Is that how that worked? There were a couple of reasons to use the shell account instead of my own computer. A, I only had one computer.
0: And, you know, if you're brand new to it, I, you know, I I wasn't going to switch the operating system on my computer and lose my ability to play all my games and so on. Uh, The other main thing was, you know, I had 33.6K or no, maybe then it was still 14.4 dial-up. No, it would, have, it would have been 33 6 by then. Uh, I only had dial-up, so I wasn't online 24-7, whereas I wanted the IRC server to be online 24-7. So running it on somebody's server who had like a T1 line instead of my dial-up uh, was the main reason why I was paying this guy $10 a month to be able to telnet into his machine and run my process
1: on his computer instead of on my own. So you get the shell account, you get your IRC server uh, set up. Did anybody join? Did it become successful? Not as Especially in the beginning.
0: Uh, later, somebody actually ported the software so it could run on Windows, and I did that as well. And then, you know, networked the, a couple of the servers together, and that's really where I started to learn stuff. I started to learn about like the protocols that programs speak. So actually, learning to connect to IRC with like Telnet and do all the things the client does, and actually, you know, respond to the messages and so on. Uh, and you know, learned how to send an email by hand using you know, Telnet or whatever, or Netcat, and even like make an HTTP request by hand and started learning a lot about protocols and stuff. And so that got me interested in programming a bit, but also, um, so in IRC, there's actually two different protocols. There's the protocol that your client speaks to the server, but there's a slightly different protocol that the servers use to talk to each other. And, you know, there's a lot less, well, I wouldn't say less validation, but when you're connected as a server. you can do things that normal people aren't allowed to do. And so I quickly evolved from uh scripting little bots in the you know MIRC scripting language that reacted to things you said in the chat room to writing a bot that connected as a server and had unlimited power <laughs> uh, and could basically do you know it could change other people's names on them and stuff. Because so, it had what was called a U line, <laughs> And so you're essentially just set out to troll people. Um, A little bit. But they're mostly people I knew. Like, you know, you, you had to get people to connect your IRC server. And if you just trolled them, they weren't going to stick around. That led into more programming and wanting to learn more about programming. But also it led to, look, all the programming I've done has been around networking. Like it's all client server stuff and speaking protocols and stuff. And not just, you know, I'm not really building apps so much as i'm building network stuff and so that and then the uh, during high school i did a work term at the power plant in the it department mm-hmm. and those the combination of those two things made me decide to go to college for network engineering and security analysis instead of software development because the, all the the programming i learned i taught myself and you know programming is something you can do with one laptop but if you want to learn Serious networking and like running Windows and Linux and BSD servers, it really helps if you have a room with 40 computers in it and a bunch of routers and
1: all the cables you could need to to make something out of it. So you get to college, you start, you sign up for these programs. Did they deliver on what you expected it to be uh, when you got there? Was it the kind of exploration of technology that you were hoping for? Um. So it was what, you know,
0: it was what it said on the tin. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why I went to this specific, uh, school I went to is because it was almost all time spent in a lab, actually doing something on a computer, not, you know, reading textbooks and having theory classes and so on. Um, of course, by the time I got there, I was past a lot of it, although it did fill in some of the, you know, bits that I had, uh, kind of glossed up when you're learning yourself you can end up with these blind spots things you didn't know that you didn't know and that you know filling those in could uh, help you understand stuff better uh, and then I had also never uh, outside of the little bit of work I did at the power plant which back then was Windows NT4 um, in college it was useful to to learn about the Windows server stuff just so I knew the basics of it uh, and you know in the end Anybody who can admin Unix usually can understand Windows better than somebody who only knows Windows.
1: Let me ask you this, Alan. When you, at some point, as you're exploring technology, you come across and kind of settle on the BSDs and that, that part of the Unix world. Later down the road, ZFS comes along. Tell me the story about how you learned about ZFS and started to become interested in it.
0: First hearing about ZFS, I think it was actually my very first uh, conference that I went to, which was BSDCAN 2012. Uh, and I think one of the one of the morning presentations was uh, from Justin Gibbs, uh, who uh, is the president of the FreeBSD Foundation, uh, and Will Andrews, who's now a friend of mine, uh, and they had been working on uh, a s- set of changes to ZFS to make it faster when you were updating only part of a block, not a whole block. Um, it's interesting because that code's actually about to finally become uh, integrated into ZFS uh, many, 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 wow. many years later. <laughs> but um, it's a long story. Uh, but so they were talking about this and they did just a, a brief glossing over of what ZFS was. And I was like, whoa, that sounds really cool. How come I'm not using this? <laughs> uh, so I started digging into it. Um, and it just so happened that a couple of months later, uh, for Scale Engine, we were building our first real storage server. You know, before it was like one of our servers had a couple extra hard drives in it, and we, you know, put the customer data on it. But we needed—we were getting to the point where we needed to store like, you know, tens of terabytes of video in a way that made sense. And so we ended up using uh, ZFS, and I started learning about it. So by time we came to uh, a year later exactly a year from when I first learned of ZFS, uh, going to the next BSD can, uh, on the train there, I started rewriting the FreeBSD Handbook chapter on ZFS because it was very basic. And like it started with, the complicated stuff of like if you're using a 32-bit computer you need to recompile your kernel with all these settings and, and blah, blah, blah it's like yeah but most people aren't so don't put the scary stuff in appendix at the end for people that are doing something weird like trying to use it on a 32-bit computer how about actually explain what it is and why it's useful and, and convince people to try it rather than scare them away with you need a custom kernel with these weird settings um, and so I started writing uh, some documentation on it and went to um, we have these things at BSD can called doc sprints where some of the people that work on documentation are sitting in a room each evening and anybody who wants to help on documentation can show up and, and actually get you know one on one help uh, to push this forward uh, and so I did that uh, and then by the time I came back uh, to BSD can again in 2014 uh, that's when I was given uh, committer access to FreeBSD as a documentation
1: committer. Uh, and then it just kind of went out of control from there. <laughs> I want to I want to f- dig into ZFS a little further. So, what is? How would you describe ZFS to a person that has never heard of it before, and maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with various file systems? They maybe maybe they've heard the name, mm-hmm. maybe they've heard it tangentially referenced. They've probably certainly heard of RAID, but they don't really know what makes ZFS ZFS. How would you explain that?
0: To start at the beginning for that you think of how we normally use computer or disks in a computer. So normally, like in your desktop, you probably have one hard drive, and then you put a file system on that uh, and use it. Um, but when you needed more space than that or you needed redundancy, then we started having this concept of RAID, where you could take multiple disks uh, and put your file system on it. But it turns out, almost no file system actually supports using more than one disk. So we basically created um, RAID, which would take a whole bunch of disks and create one what we call logical disk. So it makes a virtual disk that looks like one big disk to the file system that you're going to put on it, but is actually made up of a bunch of separate disks, you know, either striped together or mirrored or using something like RAID 5 or 6 where there's parity and so on. But a lot of what exists with RAID is all about just tricking the dumb file system into into thinking there's only one disk uh, and then doing all the magic under the hood of dealing with um, the fact that it's more than one disk the problem with this is the file system doesn't know that there are multiple disks and the because most file systems can't handle that uh, so you end up with a volume manager which is your raid or uh, md or lvm or whatever you're using uh, on linux and then on top of that, you have your file system like you know, XFS or EXT4 or whatever. Um, what ZFS does is combine those two concepts together for a couple different reasons. Um, so it's basically the volume manager and the file system, but they talk to each other and the file system actually understands. So for really important parts of the file system, like uh, the metadata that's critical to being able to read any part of the file system... ZFS will actually store two or three copies of some of those blocks. And because it knows the layout of your physical disks, it will make sure that copies of those blocks go on different physical disks, so that if one disk dies, um, there's still copies on other disks. Whereas a regular file system doesn't have the option to do that because it doesn't know about the different physical disks. But the main thing that made ZFS better is... Especially if you're thinking back before we had things like LVM where you could dynamically resize partitions. If you think back to, you know, Linux in the early 2000s, when you first installed Linux, you had to divide your disk up. And, you know, I need this much for my home directories and I'll have this much for the operating system and so on, right? And then you'd always end up with, oh, I made my slash var too small and now I have to, like, move some of the log files over here and make a symlink or something. Um, So ZFS takes the idea of taking all your space in one big pool and then thin provisioning file systems out of it. So each file system can take space from that pool whenever you need it for writing new files. But when you delete stuff, it gives that space back to the pool so some other file system can use it. Whereas with a regular you know, partitioned hard drive, you, you know, once you partition it, it's really hard to resize those.
1: What makes ZFS better for at its job of layering and combining multiple drives. What is wrong with the traditional method of combining a bunch of drives with the hardware layer and layering a virtual um, volume manager on top and then putting a file system on top of that? Is, does, is there an advantage in ZFS being aware of all the parts? Does that translate to uh, you know either performance or reliability for the end user standpoint?
0: Yeah, uh, it can definitely translate to better performance. It also improves the error handling a bit. Uh, and allows ZFS to make decisions when it's laying out data and, and files to make sure that it's taking best advantage of your hardware. But yeah, one of the big things that ZFS does that other, most other file systems don't is end-to-end data integrity. So when you're writing data to ZFS, uh, in the metadata, which is actually stored in a different place than the, the actual content of your file, uh, it also has the checksum of the file. Uh, by default, that's a uh fletcher4 checksum but you can also use like sha256 or whatever um and then every time you read data back from the disk zfs will calculate that checksum and compare it and if it's not right it can use the fact that it knows about other disks to read to basically to attempt to read the parity or a different copy if it's a mirror or whatever to find the version of the data that's correct if you have a regular hardware raid of say mirrors if one of the two sides of the mirror is wrong, the RAID array has no way of knowing which one is the right one, whereas because ZFS has these checksums, it can know which one's right, and then it'll overwrite the wrong one with the, now, the correct data, whereas with hardware RAID, it was like, ah, well, A, it doesn't know that the data's wrong, so it just gives you the wrong data, and you don't know, and B, even if it did, it wouldn't know which of the two copies is actually the right one, or if neither of them are right. Whereas ZFS, because it has the checksums, can tell which is the right data, and it makes a guarantee to you that it will never give your application the wrong data. If all the copies are wrong, because, you know, uh, which can happen for lots of reasons, you know, you have bit rot on hard drives where a bit just gets flipped uh, for some reason, or if you have a bad cable, or if bad memory, or who knows, lots of different reasons that can happen, Uh, ZFS... If the checksums don't match and it can't find any other copies, it will return an error to your application saying that data is not available rather than giving it the wrong data, which for some applications can make a very big difference, especially like scientific applications where there's a lot of data and if any of it's wrong, it could make the whole experiment turn out wrong.
1: Obviously, ZFS is probably the preferential file system for a server. I think you've made that case very well. Are there any reasons why somebody might want to run it on their desktop or on their laptop, on their daily driver computer?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a question I get a lot because, you know, a lot of the features of ZFS are all about, well, you have multiple disks so that if one fails, you can deal with it. It's like my laptop only has room for one disk or maybe two if if you have a bigger laptop or whatever. Uh, but there are still many advantages to it. The first one is we talked about the uh being able to have many different file systems that are uh pulling from the one pool of space um you can uh the other thing that zfs does i guess that we should talk about is zfs is what's called copy on write so when you change a file instead of overwriting that file in place zfs writes the changes to a different place on the disk and then after a couple seconds, if you're not using it, the if you didn't keep the old copy, that will that'll become free space and something else can be written there later. But the advantage to this is you can do what are called snapshots. So you make a snapshot of your file system at any time, and it takes basically zero seconds to make the snapshot. And unlike a snapshot in, in stuff like LVM, the number of snapshots you have never impacts the performance of uh, reading and writing from the disk. It only impacts the performance of getting a list of the snapshots. So if you have you know, thousands of snapshots, that might take a couple of seconds to make the list. But the actual reading and writing to your drive will never be any slower, whether you have zero snapshots or a thousand snapshots. With those snapshots, basically what you're doing is when you, uh, you have that copy on write, when you write the new copy, if the snapshot's still using it, it just won't erase the old copy. And now you'll be able to have either copy. Um, the other thing this lets you do is what's called a clone where you can actually say take you know i have my home directory right now uh or maybe a better example i have uh you know our website and we're about to upgrade the version of of wordpress or whatever we're using on our website so first we take a snapshot of it and then we clone that over into a development environment and then we try the upgrade and we can see if it worked and the main advantage of a clone is the blocks are shared so When you first create a clone, it takes zero extra space. Uh, It's just an exact copy of the original file system, uh, but you can change it, and it only takes up the space of the blocks you actually add or overwrite. Uh, And then later, you can either decide to keep only the clone or only the original, uh, or both, but any blocks that remain the same between them uh, don't take up extra space. So, the main reason to use ZFS on your laptop is that you can do this for your root file system, uh with what ZFS calls boot environments. Uh this will ship as a default feature available in Ubuntu 20.04, which comes out any day now, um, with their ZFS and Linux support. Uh and it's been in FreeBSD for years now. Uh so what that means is I have my laptop here that, you know, if it wasn't uh for what's going on in the world right now, I'd be going to a conference to present very soon. Uh, in previous years, uh, it would have been crazy to consider upgrading the OS on my laptop the day before I'm going to a conference where I need to present off that laptop. But with boot environments, I can basically clone uh, my working system and upgrade the clone while keeping the original working version. So I can upgrade, and if something doesn't work, I just reboot from the boot menu, just select the older snapshot and boot that up, and I have my uh, laptop, what it looked like last week, instead of what I did to it last night. And it allows you to basically have no worry about upgrades or any, you know, operation you're going to do to your computer, you can always go back to this known good state. But because ZFS is sharing blocks, it's not going to take up as much space as having, you know, two entire installs of the OS on your laptop or something.
1: The snapshots do occupy space, though, right? Let's say you have a 150 gigabyte file, and that file is no longer needed, so you delete that file, but that file is part of maybe an older snapshot. We don't necessarily get that space back, right? Right. So uh,
0: when you create a snapshot, at the instant you create it, it doesn't take any extra space. But then any blocks you change or overwrite or delete, uh, you won't get the space back until you delete the snapshot. Uh, and, uh, there's a ZFS command you can do to see how much space you would get back so that you can know, oh, you know, if I get rid of this snapshot from, you know, four weeks ago, I will get back 25 gigabytes of space on my laptop. And if I need the space then I can do that.
1: How long do you recommend people keep snapshots? Obviously, that's going to depend on the situation, the environment, the amount of data stored, the amount of available capacity, all of those things. But everything being equal, if you just had a your your run-of-the-mill mom-and-pop business, they have 10 to 15 employees. Let's say they have ten terab- 20 terabytes of, of, of a file server. How long would you keep the snapshots in place before you have them automatically expire? That can depend on a couple things. Uh, I think the first thing to look at there is... What's the worst
0: case how long it could be before you found out that something was screwy? Uh, you know, that's a uh, problem people often have with backups. It's like, oh, we take a backup every week and then we get rid of the old backups. It's like, but what if we didn't find out, or, you know, uh, people that don't have real backups, they just have like an rsync copy to an external drive or something. Um, what if you don't find out that you munged up that Excel sheet until a week later? And so now all your extra copies of it are also the broken version. Um so the biggest thing is how far back in time might you need to reach to get the not broken version of, of a file. Uh in general at least a month probably, but again if you're running out of space you have to prune some and you know if you're not running out of space you might decide to keep longer. Why are snapshots not a backup? Uh because you know they're on the same hard drive. So if that hard drive fails then your main copy and your backup are gone, right? Um now ZFS, you can use snapshots to make backups. Um, one of the big advantages of a snapshot is it never changes. So if you make a snapshot and then mount it somewhere and then make your backup from that, you know that all the files aren't going to change while you're backing them up, right? The biggest problem with trying to back up, say, a database server is that somebody might change something in the database while you're backing it up. And normally that requires, like, locking the database tables mm-hmm. and and doing all this. but. With a snapshot, you can back up, you know, take a snapshot of the computer, let the computer resume what it was doing, and back up that snapshot. Uh, And the other thing is ZFS has a protocol for this, uh, for ZFS replication. It allows you to actually take a snapshot and turn it into a stream you can send over the network. Uh, So you can do, like, ZFS send, and then the name of a snapshot, and pipe that into, you know, SSH or something, and copy it off to another computer, where you can... You could just stick it in a file, but generally, what you do is actually pipe that into the ZFS receive command, and it will recreate that file system and snapshot exactly how they were on the sending machine on the receiving machine. So, you can basically, you know, if you have an office with 10 or 15 employees or something, you can have a backup site somewhere where you have an exact copy of all your files with your snapshots that's updated uh, frequently. So, like at my video streaming company, we do this for um, customers upload videos to us. We also, we have recordings of their live video streams. We snapshot those data sets every 15 minutes and replicate all of that to our offsite backup location, which is about 60 miles away. Um, so that if something ever did happen to our file server, like if the building burned down or who knows what, uh, we could always run off that backup or drive to that backup, pick it up, and take it to a data center.
1: What do you recommend the best core like obviously if they have ZFS, ZFS send is a great way to go. By the way, I should ask, is ZFS send as simple to set up as just ZFS send on one side and ZFS receive on the other side, or is there a little bit more lacquer that has to be put up to facilitate that to actually work?
0: Um, that will actually work, although you know you're probably going to want to automate it, and that's where you get a little bit more lacquer where you're going to have to um, so when you do incremental replication? Where instead of sending all of your, you know, if you have 20 terabytes of data, you don't want to send it all every night. You want to say only the changes, which is something ZFS is very good at. Unlike a tool like rsync or borg or sync thing that has to look at every file and see if it has changed, ZFS knows from the file system, you know, every block that's changed between this date and this date, it can collect that really quickly and start sending it a lot faster than something like rsync or borg and so on. Um... But when you're doing incremental, you have to know from the backup side. So the the ZFS replication protocol is unidirectional. It it just goes from the send side to the receive side. There's no two-way communication. This is because one of the other options you could do is use ZFS send and write it to a tape and not run ZFS receive on that until five years later. And so it doesn't have any real-time communications. Um, So the send side needs to know what's the most recent snapshot that the receiving side has to s- as the starting point for you know send me the differences between that and you know what the current snapshot is uh so some kind of script or tool uh really makes that a lot easier rather than having to do it manually which is not what you're going to want to do if it's a backup because you want that automated uh, there are a couple of tools uh jim salter has one called uh, syncoid uh and uh my friend Christian wrote one called ZREPL uh that are good. And technically, I'm the maintainer of one called ZXFER, but I don't recommend it. It's uh, a lot more simplistic than the other two. The send-receive protocol has support for uh, what's called a raw send. So you can, if it's encrypted on the source machine, you can send it to a destination machine that never has the key. So you can, you could... Theoretically back it up to somebody else's NAS and they'll never be able to read it unless you go over to their machine and type, you know, ZFS load key and put in the password.
1: What do you recommend for most people to back up? And this is everything from, you know, if they have ZFS, obviously they could use something like ZFS Send, but let's say it's just a a regular old Ubuntu 1804 install, maybe it's even a Windows box. Um, what are some of the go-to backup strategies that you would suggest for a person that says, I know I need to backup my data. I want to have copies in multiple places, but I don't know where to begin. I don't know what tools to use. I don't know how many copies to store. I don't know where to store them.
0: Yeah, that's a a complicated question because the answer can be a lot different depending on different things. Uh, For like an office type thing where there's going to be at least five or more computers you want to do, something like Bacula works very nicely, but it's Probably a little too much setup if it's like, you know, I have my desktop and my laptop and I just want to back up my personal stuff, then that's it's probably a lot of overkill and extra setup uh to do something like Bacula for that. Um for my important personal files, like my tax return stuff and my business files, I use TarSnap uh because I trust the encryption it uses uh and the way it's set up, but I wouldn't recommend it for, you know, backing up large collections of family photos or something because, uh, you know, the price is is not great for backing up terabytes of data.
1: You said you trust the encryption, and obviously the encryption is going to come down to a certain amount of how strong your passphrase is. What do you recommend for people that are going to be using online cloud-style storage, even to include Tarsnap? What do you recommend, uh, what security precautions do you recommend that they follow in order to safely store their information on the cloud?
0: Uh, So the basic, the very first one that Tarsnap does right is the encryption that happens on my computer, not on theirs, and they never know the password. Uh, So this has a downside, though. Because all the encryption happens on my machine and they never have the key, they can't reset the key, the passphrase, if I lose it. Now, that is slightly a disadvantage, but it's also how you can tell how secure this online service is. If they can reset your password or rescue your data for you, that means they have access to your data, which maybe that's fine with you. You know, maybe you need the ability for that someone to reset the password if things go haywire. But if you're a little more on the, not paranoid, but if, if, if you're more concerned about the security, any service that has the ability to reset your password or something like that for you means that the encryption isn't actually, uh, you know, that they're they're maybe encrypting it to your key and their key, so they can always rescue your stuff for you. But if your biggest concern is that no one else has access to the data, then you need to make sure that they won't ever be able to unlock it for you because it means they would have access to it.
1: I have to ask Alan, I have done all of my backups thus far in my life on my own hardware because I figure I own an IT company and we set up backup solutions for other people. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I manage it myself? And so to hear you say that you're trusting a lot of your data on Tarsnap, I guess I have to ask, what is it in your mind that makes the decision that says, I'm going to go with this service? What is it that they're offering that you don't want to maintain yourself or, or what concerns do you have about maintaining local backups yourself?
0: Right. So I maintain most of my local backups myself. Uh, I have basically about one gigabyte of data that, you know, I'm extra concerned about uh, and I send that off to Tarsnap. And it costs me like $0.25 a month, so I don't ever have to think about it. But, you know, for the 700 terabytes of data we have to back up, I do that myself, uh, exactly like like you were saying. Um, It's just for the really important things like my taxes, you know, the general rules of backups is, uh, A, if there aren't three copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. And B, if you haven't tested your backup, you don't have a backup.
1: How do you recommend people test their backup? That can be as easy
0: as you know restoring into a VM and making sure that you can do that, uh, or even just you know picking a couple of files out of your backup and making sure you can restore them. Uh, because nothing worse than resting easy knowing that you have these backups, and then when something does blow up, you go to get it, and it's like, oh, it turns out it was not backing up any files that were bigger than this, or you know that it was not able to read this file because the program was open at the time or whatever it might have
1: been. We we had a client this was literally probably 3 weeks ago, 4 weeks ago, had a client that called us in a panic and said we we need you to come in and, and evaluate our backup solution because it's failed miserably. I said, "Okay." So we came in to look at what they had doing for backups. And it turns out what they had done was they had created shortcuts from the files into a into a file server. And then we're backing up the file server. So, of course, when they went to restore all of the quote-unquote data, all they had was a bunch of shortcuts. None of the actual data had ever been backed up. And it had been that way for years. Just nobody would ever noticed because when they clicked on the shortcuts, it opened the file. So they just assumed. It you know, fine. But they didn't test, like you said. Um, you said that there are three. Or
0: even the, the, You know, they thought they were testing and it wasn't
1: necessarily. right. right. Uh, a true test would have been to take it complete uh, you know into a completely separate machine and try and restore the data and see how that comes out. You said that people should have three backups in order for the data to exist, so that seems like the bare minimum is there a recommend is, do you have a recommendation for three is the absolute minimum uh obviously the more the better, but here 's where I try to stay um,
0: Generally, you know I, I have the the main copy on my computer and then just two backups uh is probably enough. Um, you know, you don't want to be spending all your time or money on extra space to to back things up. Uh, but oftentimes it also comes down to, it's cheaper to buy more space than to decide what you don't need to back up
1: and then regret it. Mm. That's wise. So let's talk about that for a second. What role You said that uh, tape plays a role in the ZFS send command in that you can, you can back data up using ZFS send to tape, and then you can retrieve that data using the ZFS receive command uh, much, much later. Uh, my question to you is what role does tape play in today? Is it still a viable storage option and for what kind of people and for what kind of data? It's still somewhat uh, usable.
0: I personally don't use it. We have... Uh, you know a huge amount of data and we just didn't make sense to invest in the tape hardware for that uh, and the other thing is we need our backup to also be usable as a hot failover. We think that our our current storage server has enough redundancy that in almost all cases it would keep working uh, but if it didn't if it so if it's offline there's a greater chance that you know that whole building is offline or something and we need to be able to, Do a DNS failover and run the entire company out of my basement instead of out of the data center.
1: (laughs) Okay, we can't just Uh, hold on. We can't just drive by that. Talk about this DNS failover. How does that work?
0: uh, So, we use a service uh, called DNS Made Easy. uh, And basically, just like regular DNS, you have all the regular zone types, but they have basically what's a dynamic uh, A record. And basically, They monitor multiple different IP addresses, and the first one that is up is what that resolves to. So if our primary web server is ever down, uh, they detect that within 60 seconds, and it updates our DNS records to point to the IP of our secondary web server, Uh, and our website gets served out of the second data center instead of the first one because it's not responding to the, the checks that they're doing. And if that one's down too, then it falls over to my basement.
1: (laughs) What role do Blu-ray discs and and optical media play? I understand that, you know, especially with flash-based media like SD cards, flash drives, um, even SSDs to a lesser extent, um, if they're unpowered for long periods of time, that can cause problems. And so the next mm-hmm. best thing up is, is a regular hard drive, but even they, because they're mechanical devices are prone to failure, so on and so forth. And so the people that are archiving data for long periods of time, hundreds of, hundreds of years, if they want to try to pass that data down maybe to the next generation, something they want to make absolutely sure that they never, ever lose. Have you dealt with anything like that in the past? Have you thought about using optical media for maybe those, you know, that you say have one gigabyte of very important data that resides on snap? Have you ever thought about backing something like that up to optical media? Um,
0: not especially. Although Part of that is my experience with especially like consumer recordable media like that. Sure. Is that they don't tend to last that long. Like, you know, when we when we all got our first burnable CDs and DVDs, we were told they would last 100 years but I have a whole stack of them over here that are not very readable now. And it's only been 15 years since I wrote them. Um, but I do know like Facebook is using very large libraries of Blu-ray discs to store um, a lot of the photos people have, and then just have hotter caches in front of it because, you know, there's a very high likelihood that, you know, when you post baby photos that three years later, nobody's going to be looking at those. Uh, but, Facebook does want that when you click on it, they have to be able to go and grab that disc and, and show it to you. Uh, but they don't necessarily need it hot online, you know, on a, an SSD so that thousands of people could look at it at once like they need the pictures attached to brand new posts.
1: That's interesting. So I wonder how that works from a practical perspective. I, I, go, on my webs- I go on my Facebook page, I scroll way, way back to 20, you know, whatever, and I click on a baby photo. Am I just left with a spinning thing while the while some sort of mechanical robot loads a disc into a player and and spools up and then copies it over and all of that?
0: I uh, kind of. Uh, I think they have some videos online of their basically they look like those giant tape libraries, but they do it with uh, the Blu-ray discs and they have a, you know a lot of them in basically rack-sized mechanical robots. Um, in general, they're not that slow. They can only read so many at once, but as long as not everybody is is. You know, scrolling back ten years on on Facebook at once is probably okay, um, and I think there's some level of like prefetching that can happen too. You know, as you're scrolling down more and more, it can be like, oh, I'm going, to, and and it might also be grouping things. Mm. So you know, when you pull up uh, all of your stuff from ten years ago, they're probably all on the same disk, and so once you load one of them, all of them are 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 hot. Gotcha.
1: Aside I, don't, f- I
0: don't know all the details of how that one works, but it's it was interesting to see the giant robots and that they were actually making use of
1: Blu-ray. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Hacker's movie where they're fighting over the uh, VHS tape that is going to play for the, the, the cable channel. And and Zero Cool and I forget who asked Burner burn are, are sitting there fighting mm-hmm. with these remote robots, so which tape is going to get inserted into the thing and play over the cable network. <laughs> it's like the modern day equivalent of that. Uh, what configuration... Alan, do you recommend for people that are setting up ZFS storage? They are listening to this episode, and they're saying to themselves, this all sounds great, I totally want to do this, sans the uh, Blu-ray robot. And so they're sitting down, what what storage recommendation, configure recommendation, how many drives, for example? Are there any particular drives that you say use these, don't use these? Any particular place that you'd recommend people buy service from? And then how do they go about actually setting that up? What kind of RAID Z level would you suggest that they use?
0: that one can depend a lot on what you're going to do with it. Um, so if you're building like a home media server or something, even though it's slightly more expensive, I do recommend doing, uh, basically raid 10 sets of mirrors because it gives you a lot more flexibility. So, uh, like even when I, uh, set up a a big NAS for other people, I often do it this way because, you know, say you have six hard drives to start. Um, If you did that as one, you know, RAID Z2 of the six drives, you would get four drives worth of the capacity. Um, But when you wanted to add more space, uh, you'd have to buy six more drives. And, you know, even now, six hard drives at once is kind of a, a big expense. For some people, that's fine. Like, you know, for my video storage company, we generally buy 12 different 12 terabyte drives at once to grow our pool. But, you know, for some people, that's obviously not practical. So with mirrors, if instead you took those six drives and did three sets of two, uh, you would get a little bit less space, right? You only have three hard drives worth of space instead of four out of the six drives. Later on, if you wanted to add more drives, you could add just two more drives at a time. So then you're at eight. And maybe that's the limit of how many can fit in the machine you have. Uh, So then what you can do is replace two of the smallest drives with two bigger drives. And again, only having to buy two drives at a time, you can then, you know, Start with all 2 terabyte drives, and then later on replace some of the 2s with 4s, and then next time you replace another set of 2s with 8s, or whatever is the most, you know, price efficient at the time. Uh, And it allows you just that much more flexibility to uh, grow the pool in smaller increments that are more affordable, rather than having to buy bigger chunks at a time. But if your storage needs are much larger, then, you know, doing something like an 8 or 10 or 12 wide RAID Z2 uh, gives you... A lot higher efficiency right if you're getting the space of 10 out of the 12 drives instead of five or six out of the 12 then you're fitting a lot less more space in the same amount of money uh, so in general i would avoid raid z1 because having only a single drive for redundancy is probably not enough now especially when you're talking you know if you're building an array that's going to be more than 10 terabytes or something it gets to take you know losing one of those drives and by the time you get around to replacing it, it gets shipped to you, and you install it, and it does the the resilvering and so on. It could take a while. And then you asked about hardware?
1: Yeah. Do you have a recommendation for... How about a recommendation for server hardware? Where can people buy servers that make good FreeNAS servers? I know one of the things that we run into in the field all the time is people will come to us with Dell R710s, R720s, and say, can I use it? This is a FreeNAS server. And we have to tell them, well, you can, but you have two options. Well, option one is to create individual RAID zeros uh, for all of the drives, and just kind of ignore that little header information on the drive itself, or uh, you can actually reflash the perk card to have just kind of a bypass dummy card that just presents the raw drives to 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 uh, FreeNAS. But in doing neither of those things, you're not you're setting yourself up for failure if you try to use hardware RAID and then install FreeNAS on top of that. So I guess I'll start with asking why is that, Alan? And then aside from that, do you have a recommendation of a good server to buy for FreeNAS or ZFS? Um, so the the
0: reason why mixing hardware RAID and ZFS doesn't work out so well is remember the point of ZFS is it knows each of those physical hard drives and um, it can tell you know which one had an error and why. Um, if you have hardware RAID, you're giving ZFS one big fake hard drive, uh, and so ZFS doesn't have a place to put like any redundancy. So the you're not actually taking advantage of ZFS's version of RAID, uh, and there's a one especially big difference in ZFS's version of RAID over hardware RAID. So in hardware RAID five, you have you know your x number of disks and x and y number of parity disks, and when you write data, um, it writes to the hard drive and then separately it then recalculates the parity of that row and writes that to the parity drive. If the power goes out or something or the system crashes or whatever happens in between that it could have updated the data but not the parity so now when a drive fails and it uses that parity and the remaining data to try to recalculate what was on the missing drive it'll be wrong because the parity didn't get updated correctly in zfs because we have those checksums it can realize when that happens and uh, fix it and also it writes the entire row as as one unit uh, atomic operation and because it's copy on write that means either that write happened or it didn't happen which means um i guess i should have explained this at the beginning when we we're talking about copy on write but the main advantage to that is say you're editing uh an excel or a spreadsheet uh on your computer and you're making a change and you hit save as the power goes out. in a regular overwriting file system that save was say halfway done updating the file In your regular file system, when you boot your computer back up, the first half of that file will be the new version, and the second half will be the old version, which for a lot of more advanced file formats is just going to be an unusable file. Uh, And your file system might even truncate the file or whatever. In ZFS, because that write didn't finish all the way, it ignores it and uses the original copy, right? That's why it writes the changes to a different place on the disk, and then once that's done, updates the pointer to point to that. So that if the system does crash or power goes out or whatever, when it comes back up, you have the unmodified version of the file from before, which is obviously better than having a broken version of the file and nothing from before.
1: Absolutely. This is fantastic. I assume that the same reason of why it's a bad idea to use hardware RAID and try and put ZFS on top of that is probably also the same reason of why we don't want to virtualize ZFS without special consideration being given, because by default, ZFS is going to expect to be able to talk to those disks directly?
0: Yeah. Um, The other main thing is a lot of hypervisors will cheat uh, with the flush command. Uh, so what, one of the things ZFS depends on is after it writes data to the disk, uh, again, you know, we're getting to that copy and write thing, we've written to the new location, and then ZFS issues a flush saying to the hard drive, make all the data I've given you should write. Don't tell me it's done until all of that's actually on the media and it will survive a power failure, right? It's not just in the cache on the drive waiting for its turn to get written to the disk. Um, and only once that's done... Does it do the right that updates the pointer saying, you know, the current version of that spreadsheet is now at the new location instead of the old one. But a lot of hypervisors will cheat at that flush command uh, because otherwise the virtual disks are very slow. Uh, And so if the hypervisor lies and says, oh, yeah, that data is definitely safe on disk when it hasn't actually flushed through to the layer below in the hypervisor that's actually talking to the storage media, which depending on your hypervisor could be a completely separate machine across the network, um, then it could mean that, you know, it lied to ZFS and ZFS's guarantee to you is based on the hard drive not lying. And if the hard drive is virtual and it lies, then uh, you can end up without having
1: that consistent data that you were hoping for. Let's talk about hard drives for a second. One of the features that intrigues me is encryption for... For for freeNAS, and the 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 -hmm. the thing that always kind of makes me scratch my head just a little bit is on one hand I do understand that you know if you're going to discard the disks, you it it's if they're encrypted, then the data is as good as useless, and so you can repurpose the disk for something else, or you can sell them or do whatever. Truth is, I've yet to work. Or if you have to, you know send it back uh, for a warranty replacement or whatever. Right. Uh, the truth is any of the organizations that I've worked with that take security that seriously, that they're really paying attention to uh, what is being stored on their disks and where those disks are winding up, they never repurpose disks. They are destroyed anytime they are taken right. out of service. Uh, aside from that scenario in which I could potentially reuse a disk or, as you say, return it to a manufacturer for warranty purposes, those those sorts of things, is there any particular advantage to encrypting a NAS? Being that, in order for the encrypted pool to be accessible, it, the key must be loaded into memory. So, if an attacker, uh, you know, ever got possession of the machine, the encryption really isn't doing much for it because they could, uh, you know, do a cold boot attack, dump the key out of memory, and decrypt the data.
0: Yeah, right. Or if you know they got their access via SSH somehow, then all the data is encrypted, and they just walk around the file system right. and do whatever they want. Uh, so, yeah, you know, none of my NASs are encrypted for basically exactly that reason. The There's a much higher chance of me forgetting the password and not being able to access my data than it ever saving me from someone else accessing the data. Now, there is an interesting feature in ZFS that's uh, very new that's coming. Okay. Uh, so I guess it'll be it'll be in the Ubuntu release that comes out this week. Uh, and it should be, I think it's in the FreeNAS nightlies, but not in the releases yet. Um, and that is per File system encryption in ZFS. So, up until now with FreeNAS and, uh, and FreeBSD, we did whole drive encryption with Deli, which is kind of like DMCrypt or, or Lux on Linux. Um, but with this ZFS one, it can actually help you. So, uh, each different uh, file system that you have with ZFS can be encrypted with a different key. And if, for example, you're not using it, you can actually uh, unmount it and run the unload key command. And now the key isn't in memory and no one can access that file system until someone that knows the password comes back and mounts it again. Wow. Uh, The other nice thing with that one is uh, the way they stored it, they split the checksum field, which is 256 bits in ZFS in half. So they have half of the checksum of the actual encrypted data that goes on the disk. And the second half is the Mac or message authentication code of the encrypted version. This means that it can still do a scrub uh, or a resilver so it can things like replacing a failed disk don't require the uh, encryption key to be loaded because it can use the checksum to verify the encrypted version and as long as it's reconstructed that right it you know someone else will be able to decrypt it later it means that suddenly your storage administrator doesn't need to have access to those encryption keys uh, so we do something kind of similar at my business where all of the credit card information for our customers is encrypted with a key that's on a couple of USB sticks. And I only load that on my computer once a month when I do the billing cycle. You know, Outside of that, there's no way to access the encrypted credit cards uh, in our database unless I've plugged in that little USB key with the, the decryption stuff on it. And I only do that once a month. And so uh, with this newer ZFS encryption, you'll be able to do kind of the same thing. Uh, so I have an article explaining this in more detail coming out in the FreeBSD Journal, which is free now, uh, and it goes into detail on uh, how this new encryption feature works and why you might uh, want to use it and why, you know, it gives you a lot more flexibility than the regular kind of whole disk encryption uh, option that has been the only option up until now.
1: I'm very excited to take a look at this. This is something I plan on implementing as soon as it's available, so this is this is fantastic. Now, I can't just drive over the fact that you said that your basement is the backup data center for Scale Engine? You have to tell me about this, Alan. What is what kind of internet? What kind of hardware do you have running in your basement that it can function as a failover for your video streaming company? From the ISP,
0: we have a point-to-point link. Uh, so basically, I have a one gigabit LAN that goes from my house the sixty miles or so to the data center, uh, and so one of the switch ports at the data center s- looks like it's a, a cable running directly to my house. Uh, at one gigabit. It's actually not, it's MPLS and switches and stuff in the middle, but it's, as far as it looks to me, it's, it's a transparent VLAN that goes from the data center all the way to my house. Uh, and it costs more than my mortgage does every month. So it's not something I recommend people (laughs) do. And then there's uh, a rack in the the basement bedroom of my house has been repurposed into a server room and has its own separate air conditioning and everything. It was interesting to get the right kind of air conditioner that could continue to cool the room even when it's below freezing outside. A typical home air conditioner compressor doesn't want to run when it's negative some number of degrees Celsius outside in the Canadian winter. But the server room still gets hot even when it's snowing out. And then, yeah, so we have a rack there and we have... uh, whole bunch of you know basically our, our typical storage servers which are super micro machines with dual Xeons and you know 128 gigs of ram like uh the one of them is 24 6 terabyte drives with an expansion shelf that has 44 12 terabyte drives and then another one is 44 5 terabyte drives and then we have two other machines that are each 12 4 terabyte drives and and so on so there's like I think 700 and something terabytes of storage in the, in my basement.
1: How often do you check on your disks?
0: Quite often. We have uh, our Nagios monitoring will alert as soon as um, it sees any disk with like smart uh, relocated sector counts going up or uh, if ZFS ever sees checksum errors on a disk or a disk disconnecting, uh, then we get alerts on that. Uh, we do a ZFS scrub only about once every three months, even though, you know, the recommendation is once a month, but, uh, you know, we have very large pools. So we generally only do it once every three months.
1: How long before you swap a disk out? Is there ever a time when you say, Yep, that disk has been in, even though there's no problems, even though there are no errors, that disk is in, produ- in production long enough that it's coming out because I'm not waiting for it to fail? Or do you say, this is, the, this is why I have three copies of my data. I could care less if it fails. I'll just copy the data back over.
0: Um, so I definitely would want to depend on backups uh, for this stuff because we need it to be online all the time. Uh, we do generally have RAID Z two or more so that one disk failing isn't an emergency because uh, you know we can still lose a second disk and still have everything stay online. Which is again one of the reasons why we use RAID Z two or RAID Z three uh, rather than RAID Z one because with RAID Z one if one disk dies you need to replace it asap because if a second disk dies you've lost all your data. We we'll preemptively replace disks usually only if they're performing badly so we've had disks that haven't failed but are you know taking a lot longer than you know the 10 other identical disks to return data and so on i think the good rule of thumb is if the disk is out of warranty you might want to stop using it at the same time you know we have hundreds and hundreds of disks and it gets to be a bit much to keep track of them all uh and so oftentimes it is just you know if if it fails or slows things down or or otherwise draws my attention to it then it can get replaced so yes we will sometimes preemptively replace disks although we don't necessarily have a hard and fast rule about it you know we have some two terabyte sas drives that are like eight years old and are still running happily mostly we've replaced that machine because it was too small to be useful anymore
1: Alan Jude, he is the host of BSD Now. You can find that show at bsdnow.tv and the owner of Scale Engine, the video streaming service that we use here at the Ask Noah show to bring you the program every single week. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the program. We appreciate you talking to us and sharing your knowledge with ZFS. We'll get you back on the program real soon because there is a lot more stuff to cover. We're just out of time for this episode. Yep. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again sometime. And that will put another episode of the Ask Noah Show in the books. Throughout the week, we invite you to follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show to stay up to date with the latest content, the latest episodes. We also invite you to go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That is the show's resource site. It will give you access to all of the articles and references we use to build the show to include ZFS Mastery, the book by Alan Jude that was referenced today. We'll see you all back here next week at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.